Amen. All right, take your Bible, if you would, and let us go over to Hebrews chapter number 9. We're going to read the the first part of the chapter. We got all the way, I think, to verse number 13, uh, but we certainly want to see the context there as we uh, wind up for it. I'll say this. um, I think the first part of the book of Hebrews was kind of like if you when you rode a bike when you were a little kid, uh, you'd ride up one side of the hill and it was work, uh, but the downside of the hill was a lot of fun. And uh, I think Hebrews, uh, that past chapter like 8 and 9, feels like the downside of the hill, uh, at least in my mind. And maybe that's just because, and certainly this bears a part of it, maybe that's just because we've spent the time working on understanding uh, the terms and the style and uh, just the direction of the book. And so if you've been with us through each of these studies, um, the, the rest of the book of Hebrews seems pretty, I don't want to say easy, but it, it, it's certainly easy to digest. And uh, it's not a hard or complex portion. Now, there will be hard and complex portions that do come. We'll have to address some things as we move through. But uh, by and large, the rest of the chapters are very easy to understand, like a downside of, a, of the slope, if you will. So he Hebrews chapter number nine, verse number one, uh, we'll jump right in. We're going to read the first probably 10 or 15 verses uh, without any exegesis, without any stopping and explaining. Uh, we've done that. Go back, if you will, uh, last week, if you were not present with us and catch that portion of it. Uh, it. This portion is a little bit complex and there requires some some development, but we're getting into Hebrews chapter number 10 today and then Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And and so there's some really good things coming and uh, uh, it's almost it's almost like it's easy eating uh, kind of uh, uh, text, if you will. So Hebrews chapter nine, verse number one says, then verily the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. After the second veil, the ta- uh, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So he's just kind of explaining the setup of the Old Testament tabernacle, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid around about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that had bud- uh, that budded and the tables of the covenants. Over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And some people will make that statement out to seem kind of mysterious, like I have more things to say, but I won't. Uh, I think he's just saying, hey, I'm not going to go into further detail there. Uh, Now when these things, verse number six, were thus ordained, the priests went all way into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And that's really important because if you were to give chapter number nine a theme, it's eternal security. And uh, if you were going to write a theme above chapter number nine, I'd write the phrase eternal security. If ever you have a friend, um, maybe who's maybe a free will Baptist or uh, the Nazarenes, they believe in a workspace salvation, but they also believe you can lose your salvation. They believe in conditional uh, salvation. Hebrews chapter number nine is a rock solid place to go to, to settle. Once you're saved, you're always saved. There's just one sacrifice for sin. Um, And so he says uh, uh, in verse number nine, when they were ordained, they went into that first tabernacle, always into that first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Verse seven, but into the second went the high priest alone uh, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the error of the errors of the people. And that's important because we recognize that this high priest of the Old Testament that uh, was after the, the lineage of Aaron, uh, it's kind of that loop uh, circle year over year. They're going to have to keep coming back. Um, he said they go in and they'd offer sacrifice, but not just for the sins of Israel, but for their own sins. Aaron was a sinner himself, and so he's offering on his own behalf. Uh, Verse number nine, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, this is what that whole system was supposed to signify. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, 
that could make that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So he says, listen, all of this work of the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, all of this could not make anyone purged of sin. Uh, it could not take away any sins. And you're actually going to find some even stronger, more absolute language that tells us that that, sacrifice, that sacrificial system couldn't take away any sin. But let's keep looking. Verse number nine, <clears throat> which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did ser- the service perfect as pertaining to conscience. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. And you'll recognize that word. I've been using that word a lot in our Sunday morning, 11 o'clock hour. I love that word that Christ is reforming us. He's disannulling the old way and giving us a new way. And uh, verse number 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. And then verse 12 and 13 is our new material. So let's dive in. He says, neither by the blood of uh, of goats and of calves, But by his own blood, he entered in. Would you read that word out loud, please? Once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So again, for the rest of this chapter, we're going to deal with this idea of eternal security, eternal redemption for us. The idea of eternal at its most basic definition is that it lasts forever. And so you can't be eternally saved and then lost again. So once you are saved, you are saved for eternity. Uh, It's really, you really have to stretch and parse out and break down things that weren't meant to be broken down. The common reading of this is that Christ went and obtained once and for all eternal security. The priest couldn't do it. The first covenants couldn't do it. The tabernacle and the temple couldn't do it. But Jesus who is this mediator of a new covenant goes in and makes, uh, uh, obtains redemption for once and for all. Verse number 13. Notice this for if, and here's the new material for if the blood of bulls uh, uh, and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh. So he says, if this is kind of a, not a hypothetical, but he's simply saying, Hey, if it could do it, if it, if salvation could have been accomplished, then notice, uh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, uh, who through et- the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying, he's not saying that it could, because he's going to tell us in a few verses that it never did, but he's saying, hey, if you thought that was valuable, how much more valuable over the blood of goats and bulls is the blood of the eternal God? Think about that. We have a God who while on earth bled on our behalf, shed his own blood on our behalf. And the the value is immeasurably greater than that of the blood of goats and bulls and lambs that was shed year over year. Um, But I want you to notice in verse number 14, I want you to look for the Trinity. So we've been talking in my starting point class about non-Trinitarian views. Um, There are people who believe that uh, uh, God became, or he was the father in the Old Testament. He took that hat off. He became the mode of the son. He took that off and then he became the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's an apostasy. That is heresy. That is damnable heresy. Uh, And I want you to see why we believe in the Trinity. Here's another proof of it. Verse number 14. Notice the Trinity. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, there's a trinity there. You have Jesus who through the spirit sacrificed himself and offered blood to God the Father. So again, we were talking about it Wednesday night in my class. And so just another proof text there for those of you who are with me over there. Look at verse number 15. For this cause, because of that reality, because of what Jesus has already done, 
He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So what he's telling us is that the Old Testament brought us the law, and that law showed us our sin. It brought us condemnation. But this mediator is giving us a better testament that brought us eternal redemption. So the first testament under Moses brought us condemnation. That's what the law did. It showed us that, hey, you can't lust and you can't steal and you can't covet and you can't take God's name in vain. And it showed us all of these standards that none of us would ever meet. So in effect, Moses' testament brought us condemnation. But Jesus' testament, a better mediator of a new testament, brings us eternal inheritance. Now we can be redeemed. Look at verse number 16. For where a testament is, this is a really important kind of visual illustration the author's trying to make. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Now you say, why? Why would that be? Think about it in this terms. You're thinking New Testament and Old Testament. You'd say, well, in order for there to be a New Testament, someone has to die. Well, kind of yes, but, but think about it this way. Think about a last will and testament. Um, I have a last will and testament. That last will and testament is not in effect until I die. So who gets what and what goes where? All of that can be changed and does not stand as law until I die. But when I die, it becomes law. It becomes immovable. Nothing can be added or subtracted from it. The testament that I make in my life, when I make a will and testament, because I might change that in 10 10 years from now, I might decide, well, we want to leave this to that and want to leave this over here. And so that testament, so long as I live, is not in effect. I mean, it matters. I have it. I'm working it. It's in my safe. I, you know, revisit it from time to time. If I go out of country, like when I go to Africa, I'll revisit that testament and make sure that it's up to date. But it's not in effect until I die. But once I die, it becomes law and unchangeable law. So read it again, verse 16, and we'll jump to verse 17. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. So think about Moses, right? Moses wrote the Old Testament at his death. The law was then closed, right? The Ten Commandments were written. There was no adding an 11th. There was no subtracting the 7th. There was nothing to change. The man, the mediator who wrote the Testament, Moses, is now dead. It is now, in effect, an unchangeable. It is binding by law. It is settled. Well, the same is true of Christ. Look at verse 17. For a Testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So it doesn't matter who gets the car, who gets the house while I'm alive, because I'm still alive. But when I die, it then becomes law. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament, the Old Testament, was dedicated without blood. So he's saying that Old Testament was dedicated by blood, by death. Notice this, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, and that happened in Exodus 24. You can write that in the, the column of your Bible. In Exodus 24, we talked about that even recently, that Moses said, will you do all that the law commands you? And they said, yes, we will do all of it. And he sprinkles the people, and he sprinkles the book, and the covenant is now sealed, and the law is now settled. Verse number 20, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto us. So this blood that binds you to the testimony that God has made with you. That's what Moses said to them. This blood binds you to this covenant. You're sprinkled, it's sprinkled, it's settled. Now, that phrase, let me read it again for you, sounds familiar. See if you recognize it. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. That sound familiar? 
1 Corinthians 11.25, after the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. There is a covenant that was made. Part of the Lord's Supper is remembering that covenant that he has made with us. It's a New Testament, a new covenant made by God to man. And this goes back to the original thought of chapter number eight. We talked about how Jesus is not just a priest, but he's a mediator. Priests do not make uh, covenants. They enforce covenants. They fulfill covenants. They make sacrifices based on covenants. Moses was a mediator. Jesus was both a priest and a mediator in that he brought us, he didn't just fulfill the Old Testament. He brought us a new covenant under uh, uh, his grace. So verse number 21, look at verse 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And that's important because now it's two different time uh, slots. Moses in Exodus 24 sprinkles them and the book uh, at uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. And then years later, as this tabernacle is built, he now sprinkles this. So what he's saying is everywhere there was a testament made, blood was sprinkled. Okay, hold on to that. Verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that word remission means that there is no cleansing. There is no purifying. There is no forgiveness. There is no usability. You couldn't use a vessel in the tabernacle unless it was sprinkled first because now it's been cleansed. It's now acceptable to God. And so the shedding of blood allows things to be acceptable unto God. You see where that's going. You see where the author is going. He isn't so much talking about the uh, tabernacle or the temple. He's illustrating us as new believers being sprinkled by blood, now being acceptable unto God under a New Testament. Verse 23. It was therefore uh, necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these. So you remember we use the illustration of a shadow, right? We went back to Exodus and saw that Moses was told to build a tabernacle based off of what he saw, but the tabernacle was a shadow of the thing that had substance. And so it was therefore necessary that the pattern, the things on earth, uh, that they were patterned off of heaven, they should be purified by blood. Look at verse 23. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So look at the picture. There's a tabernacle on earth built off of a picture of what Moses saw in heaven. God says these things had to be sprinkled with blood. Those things had to be sprinkled with better sacrifices. Christ is not a mediator in or a priest in this earthly temple, but a priest in the heavenly temple. And Christ was not given earthly sacrifices, but a better sacrifice to make. And so you see the imagery here uh, that yes, the priest would sacrifice and there was a mercy seat and it was covered by cherubims. And there was all this stuff that happened as patterns of the things in heaven. They rather, that was the pattern. And this was the shadow. Uh, and it's showing us what Jesus did for us. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So just like he opened in chapter number nine, year over year, they'd go into that second, ta- that second uh, 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 past the veil, that second room, the Holy of Holies, and they'd make sacrifice once for a year. Uh, the Bible says here that Christ didn't go into uh, a place made with hands, but into the presence of God himself to appear on our behalf to offer blood. Verse 25 nor yet that he should offer himself often. So back up in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself, what's the next word? Often. As the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood 
of others. So listen, don't move on from here. Park, park on this, this reality with me. Eternal security was obtained once and for all. Christ does not need to die again. He made a sacrifice once and for all. The juxtaposition of chapter eight and nine is this. Every year, over and over again, insufficient sacrifices. It couldn't forever sin atone. This was not sufficient, but Christ once and for all, having obtained eternal security for us, has, has purchased our redemption and shed his blood. And verse 25 again, nor yet that he should offer himself often. This is because it was the blood of God. This sacrifice was made and made once and for all. There would never need to be another drop of blood of Jesus shed ever again. Look at verse 25 and 26 again. Let's read it again uh, together. Nor that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have uh, suffered since the foundation of the world. You know what he's saying? If the sacrifice of Christ in heaven wasn't enough, he would have to suffer over and over and over and over and over again. So listen, this is exactly why he tells us there is no more sacrifice for sin. Keep reading in verse number 26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is, there is no more redemption needed. This is why when we were in chapter number six, we said, listen, you cannot lose salvation because you'd have to re-sacrifice. There's no more re-sacrificing of Christ. He doesn't need to suffer again. His blood was sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient, but the blood of Jesus was once and for all sufficient. Not in a, in a tabernacle made by hands, but in the presence of God, he appeared for us to put away sin. Verse 27. And as it, uh, as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment, so Christ was, what's the word? Once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that took, look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Listen, there is never going to be another sacrifice. That, we sing that song, the next time he comes, he won't have to die for me. The next time he comes, he will begin eternity. Uh, there is no more sacrifice. It's so incredibly obvious when you read the book of Hebrews, especially chapter eight or chapter number nine, that there is no more shedding of blood. There's no need for it. So again, this comes to the Catholic heresy where they believe that week over week, that blood is now uh, you know, brought down and re-sacrificing Christ. That is a damnable heresy. That is not anything you find in the Bible. In fact, you find the very contrary to it, that his blood was forever. It was sufficient in his one sacrifice to cover the sins of all mankind. Look at verse number one of Hebrews chapter number 10, if you would. Hebrews chapter number 10, we're going to roll right into this next chapter. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comer thereunto perfect. Did you catch what he said? The sacrifice, the shadow couldn't rescue us. The hand could, the shadow could not. It could not take away any sins. Now, if you're in my class on Wednesday night, we talked about this um, when it comes to dispensationalism. Um, dispensationalism there, is simply this, that God dealt with specific people in specific ways at specific times. Um, there are false beliefs out there that believe in the Old Testament, you got saved by the sacrificial system. Have you never read the book of Hebrews? 
Because it couldn't take away, not only could it not take away all sin, it couldn't take away any sin. It could not rescue you. Uh, and I'm going to use the illustration in a minute about the idea. If you fell into uh, a pit, imagine you fell into a pit and uh, my shadow could reach down. You could, maybe I couldn't get to you, but I could reach down like this and you could grab my shadow. Could my shadow pull you out? My shadow cannot pull you out. Can my hand pull you out? Yes. The entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, every single thing was a shadow of the pattern. It was a shadow of the substance. And it could not, my shadow cannot rescue you, but my hand could. And that's what he's saying. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things themselves can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. It could not forgive their sin. Look at verse number two. For then... They uh, then would they not have ceased to be offered? He says, if they were sufficient, the offerings would have continued. There would have been a continual sacrifice made. If year over year, that was enough for the sins of the past year, then they would just keep on making the sacrifice. Notice what it says. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshiper once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. He said, if those sacrifices were sufficient, they would have continued. Now, I, I, I want to sidebar here, but I actually want to sidebar for a different purpose. Um, this goes back to what I talked about last week about the tabernacle being past tense and uh, it not continuing anymore. Brother Bob pointed out, yeah, the tabernacle stopped with, it, with, uh, with David. You're right, Solomon. But here it says that the sacrifices have ended. Um, so is this because the, ta- the temple no longer exists? Here's why I say that. Let me, let me, let me illustrate one really important thing. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that we have all approached scripture with biases. We all approach scripture to prove points we hold. So like I kind of jokingly, and you'll recognize this, like I, I'm of the persuasion Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. So here's what's going to happen. When I read the book of Hebrews, you know what I'm going to find evidence for? Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. But if you believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, you can read the book of Hebrews and you're going to find evidence for... Paul writing the book of Hebrews. Now, I point this out to point this out. Some of that's unavoidable, but it's extremely dangerous, okay? Um, Because here's what non-Trinitarian people do. They approach the Bible with their preconceived ideas that there is no Trinity, and they'll find proof text to prove that. Um, What I'm doing right now isn't great. It's proof texting. I'm proving something the Bible isn't saying there. The Bible has, it's not, this verse that I just read about the sacrifices ceasing, it's not put in there for us to know who the author of the book of Hebrews is. So you see, I'm drawing a conclusion from a text that it wasn't even intending. Now, again, there's almost no way to avoid that, especially when you're investigating um, something, but it is a very dangerous habit to do. And especially if you're going to base doctrine off of it, you want to base the authorship of Hebrews. It doesn't matter to me who you think wrote the book. You're not going to be a heretic one way or another. But if you want to base your belief on whether or not the Trinity exists, based off of, well, I found this one verse out of context. Yeah, but what about the rest of the Bible? And what was that verse actually talking about? So be very, very careful not to proof text. Uh, I actually just did it as to illustrate my point that that's not what that verse is saying. Now you may could draw that conclusion, but certainly not what the author's intending you to come to a conclusion. Does that make sense? Okay, look at verse number three. Let's keep reading and stay back in our context. He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again, made of sins every single year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So again, if you hold the position, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by works. They were saved by the sacrificial system. 
Well, you've never read Hebrews chapter 10, where verse number 4 explicitly states, it is not possible that that sacrifice could take away any of their sins because it's a shadow. It can't rescue them. The substance could. In fact, Paul already told us what the law was for. It was to show us Jesus. It was to be a taskmaster that brings us to the feet of our creator so we could realize we were in need of a savior. Verse number five. Wherefore, when he came into the world, he saith, now that's a cue. Now in most books, you'd, you'd recognize the author would say, it is written. Well, the author of the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews just throws those two words in there. He saith. So he's referencing an Old Testament uh, um, uh, passage. He's, he's, recog- or he's referencing back. Uh, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared. So I, I know that that's, kind of, that's going to take some work to develop, but essentially what he's saying, and we'll show you where he says that in else, other, way, other places, but essentially what he's saying is that God is not pleased with sacrifice. He desires obedience. He desires your body. He desires your behavior. He desires your ear. He'll say your ear in another passage, but he desires that you obey and not have to sacrifice because obedience is better than sacrifice. What would God rather you live holy or have to kill a lamb? That lamb didn't do anything. God doesn't take pleasure in the blood of animals. He doesn't enjoy it. In fact, back in the Old Testament, he says, you can give me rivers of oil and streams of blood. I'm not satisfied with that. God doesn't want sacrifice. And the Jews got to a place in their mind where it was only about sacrifice. God is pleased by sacrifice. No, sacrifice only happens because you're disobedient. God would rather your obedience than your sacrifice. So again, that's essentially what he's saying. Verse number five, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Verse six, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come Uh, In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So he says, it's better to have a body that is obedient and doing the will of God than it is to have rivers of oil and streams of blood. Now, verse number five through seven is a reference to an Old Testament passage. We told you about that. Let's get you to that passage. Go to Psalm chapter number 40, if you would. Psalm chapter number 40, we'll look at verse six and seven. There's actually also undertones about the Lord's Supper in this particular passage as well. There's a reason there's a body and blood, okay? So verse number six of Psalm 40 says this, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest, or thou didst not desire. Mine ear hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So here's what the psalmist is saying. It's actually a prophecy of Christ. Christ is coming to say, listen, the father does not, is not pleased with sacrifice, though he'll demand it. He is pleased with an obedient body and an obedient ear to come and do the will of him uh, that sent me. And so Jesus says when he comes, I'm here to do the will of my father. I'm here to be obedient to the Lord. I'm here to have a perfect body and then be the bloody sacrifice. So he meets both demands. And so that blood is a reference to his sacrifice when we take the Lord's Supper. But that body is also a reference, not just to it, it being broken, but into it being obedient that he was perfect in every way, and then he shed his blood as a sacrifice. So let's jump back into Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. We'll pick up in verse number eight. We got a couple minutes. We'd be able to travel through some of this text. Verse number eight says, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst thou pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Verse number nine, then said he, and he's talking about Jesus, though that was a Psalm written by David. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first. Notice how the author ties it all together, that he may establish the second. So this is back to that better Testament. 
because he was obedient. He was the second Adam, Adam who failed. So what you're finding is that Jesus is better than every predecessor he had. He's a better mediator like Moses. He's a better Adam than Adam was. He's a better Aaron than Aaron was because all of these things were a shadow pointing to Jesus. He's a better king than David uh, through his line. He's a better sacrifice than any of those sacrifices because he came to take away the first that he might establish the second. Verse number 10, by which will, uh, forgive me, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Read the next three words, once for all. So he did it all. There's nothing left to be done. You cannot escape the book of Hebrews believing you can lose your salvation because what you're saying is the blood was not sufficient. Well, his blood was enough until five years, until five years into salvation when I would really mess up. No, his blood was enough then and his blood is enough now because it's the blood of God. It's not the shadow, it's the substance. It's not the, it's not the, the, the lambs or the goats. It's the blood of God shed on our behalf. Uh, notice in contrast, once and for all in verse number 10, notice in contrast in verse number 11. For every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So listen, they, they were there for generations, tending to this altar, generation after generation after generation after sacrifice, after sacrifice after sacrifice. Verse 12, notice the, the juxtaposition. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. And there's a beautiful picture here, and we'll end with this. Here's the temple and the tabernacle and the altar, year over year, circle after circle, offering, 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 same offerings, bloodshed, bloodshed, more bloodshed. And then the Bible says that what Jesus did, that once and for all, he made the sacrifice, look, 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 on the cross, and he no longer attends that altar. Listen to that. He no longer attends that altar. The priest can't leave. Every single day, they got to make sacrifice. Jesus made a sacrifice one time on the cross and he left that altar. And what did he do? Well, look at verse number 10, 12. Sat down on the right hand of God. The priests are still there offering year over year, day over day, same sacrifices. Jesus makes one sacrifice once and forever. And then he leaves the altar and he goes and sits down at the father's hand. So listen, that's one of the reasons that we don't, and as Baptists, as Christians, we don't have Jesus on the cross in the church because he's not at that altar anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That sacrifice is done. There's no more need to attend the cross. Now, thank God we get to come to the cross, come through the cross, but the fact of the matter is, it's an altar Jesus made sacrifice once for, and then he sat down. He left because it was finished. It was done. There is no more need to re-crucify Jesus. There is no need to go to the cross again and, and collect blood that's being shed. It was done once and for all, and eternal redemption is purchased forever. Let's pray.